Hello and welcome to the next edition of our podcast Lights on Europe. Today we speak to Giulio Veneri, one of my friends who I got to know as a musician thanks to the band that he's playing with here in Brussels, Drones 72. He's actually a colleague that's working on Albania, one of our neighborhood countries that we're helping reform all kinds of, all sectors of their society and get better integrated into the European Union one day. He is also sharing about his work with the youth and his vision for the future of education and how he works with uh, students from all around the world to better understand European Union and possibly be better in case they're competing on the European policy-making uh, labor market. And last but not least, he's also sharing his wisdom about creativity and how we can unleash the beauty and the emotions that we have in ourselves whenever we embark on some kind of creative project. Hello and welcome to my friend Giulio Venneri. Thank you so much for having me with you. So you're a very interesting case of whoever could be a European official in the institutions. I got to know you first as a rock star or a musician and only later as one of the probably wisest people I know around here. So who are you primarily or what is typically, what is the most favorite myth people think of when you tell them that you're an European official and then um, surprise you with who you are really? Uh, well, first, thank you so much for all the flattering words that you, you use to introduce me. Uh, but um, to go straight into your question, I've been doing a lot of outreach uh, for the Commission in the past a few years that I'm here in Brussels and indeed I noticed that there is always a little bit of uh, skepticism uh, on on EU officials on how you know we follow uh, the rules we follow the line and uh, first of all I think the myth is that we cannot be funny uh, and uh, then in by interacting with uh, you know young students or journalists or whoever uh, category of visitors we get uh, in our visitor centers or in other in other contexts, also during missions, etc. Uh, it's always surprising that, that there is someone coming at the end of the talk or the interaction saying, "Oh, uh, you are actually a very cheerful person." So I think one of the biggest myth is that we cannot be cheerful if we work for the commission. I think it's is a myth that we have to to work to, to solve. Yeah. So big thanks to you as well that you also work on busting this myth by everything that you're doing, which as I said for me it's primarily a rock star or a guitarist. So what is this musician identity in you? How do you manage being a, a rock star as a new official? Well rock star I think it's a big word but let's say that with a few colleagues we managed to keep alive a music project. We have already produced uh, two uh, EP extended plays. What and is it? It's it's an album with five six songs, so it's just okay. a short. Uh, it's a short uh, CD, and uh, uh, it's actually Brussels that brought us together. Uh, we have a band of four members, three working for the EU institutions, and one friend who is our singer and and, and frontman from the private sector, and we met in meetings. And, uh, you know, you discover that a colleague is sitting next to you and is moving his fingers, pretending he's playing the drums in the middle of the meeting. And at the end of the, of the meeting, I went and said, do you play drums? I said, yeah, do you want to do a band? So that's how it actually no all started. Way. Yes, of course. <laughs> so it is uh, a band that it's born uh, under the auspices, let me say, of, the, of uh, 
EU uh, institutions, although, as I said, the singer is not working for the EU. Tell us the name for those of you who want to listen to you. So the band is called Drones72 and again also it has a lot to do with work because we just started to play together because of, of the wife of a colleague was who, who had worked in, 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 in Eastern partnership countries. Um, she was volunteering for project getting Young, young kids being operated here in Brussels at St. Luke or other hospitals. And she knew I was a musician and she said, hey, can you just put together a band with some of your colleagues because we are to fundraise for kids to get a heart transplant. I was like, wow, that's a very noble thing. So uh, it started actually because the wife of a colleague asked and, um, and then the name was just very random. I was actually on mission. Uh, Mission in, being uh, you speak for business trip. Exactly. I was on a business trip to uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina and we were uh, attending a presentation by our military, uh, including drones pictures. And then I, uh, I got this message in the evening saying, hey, I need a name for the band, for the flyer. And I said, oh, I was all excited about this drones picture. So I said, drones sounds cool. And then on the way back to Brussels the day after, um, one of the perspective back then band members said hey I just checked on Google there is a band called drones and then I said okay there's only one way to avoid being sued uh, let's add the umlaut or you know in, the, in our case we choose the Danish uh, <laughs> with the bar and we had to add the name and I was flying to Brussels connecting in Munich and I just read somewhere cafe 72 and so I picked a random name. So I was too busy at work to think of cool names. So it just came Drone72. But we are available on Spotify and all these portals. Tell us a little bit more of what is it that you work on, actually. You've mentioned the Eastern uh, neighborhood and enlargement which is one of the most important policies of the European Union, really the interaction of the neighboring countries uh, that uh, we have very special relationship with, but who are not our members yet. So what is your engagement there? It's actually, since I joined the Commission in 2010, I've worked for, uh, well, back then, DG Enlargement and now DG Near. So DG being a Director General, exactly. which is one part of the European Commission. Exactly. So, Eurospeak, a live translation from Lucia. Thank you very much for the subtitles. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I work in the General Director for, for Neighborhood Policy and Enlargement Negotiations now, which used to be um, a standalone general director for enlargement a few years ago. Uh, I first uh, served in the unit dealing with Bosnia-Herzegovina and then I moved on to uh, dealing with Albania, which is another country in our neighborhood that is in the pipeline for, uh, for membership. And uh, uh, it's now 10 years that I've been dealing, almost 10 years I've been dealing with enlargement countries. Uh, and I find this a very fascinating uh, job because the engagement Although this being, you know, third countries, uh, countries in our, um, in our neighborhood with whom we have special relations, they are inevitably attracted uh, by the EU and their citizen in particular. And in the case of Albania, this is very straightforward. The citizen have, an, uh, I think, an enormous thirst for Europe, for what all the EU and all its, its values mean and I have to say that very often I find very refreshing to engage especially with the youth when we organize outreach uh, activities in the countries concerned especially in Albania recently 
uh, getting, uh, I, I come back getting very refreshed by the youth of this country because I tend to understand more, uh, if possible, of our values and achievements by seeing how we are perceived in the eyes of people who aspire to, to join our space of, uh, of freedoms. So this is, this is very refreshing. This is also very fulfilling, gives us a good feeling when we get to speak to people from the countries who are aiming to become members. And I get much more conscious of this, how much of this eager, really wish to become a member is there when I go to our regions and when I hear how maybe sometimes ungrateful people are or how much they disagree with whatever the European Union is doing or don't understand what it's giving them in everyday life. In our region, in Central European region, this mood of appreciating the European Union membership changed a lot since the pre-enlargement phase. And so going now to countries such as to Balkans and talking to people who really crave the membership, it's really beautiful to hear and kind of a nice remembering memory of, of what is it that we offer as a value proposition and as a kind of prospect of the future to this country. So I guess you're lucky there that you go to the regions where people really uh, crave the membership. Yes, yes. I think that one of the latest um, uh, opinion polls that were run showed that in Albania, I think it's above 95% of support to European integration of the country. So it's pretty, pretty much almost unanimous support by the citizens of the country to, to move forward and, and therefore also to have all uh, reforms in very delicate sectors that the countries are undertaking and Albania in particular is undertaking to, to get uh, closer and move ahead in, in the European path. What do you say to people who are afraid of Eastern enlargement, um, people who probably don't know enough about the culture and who may think that the people there or the economy or the society are not European enough or modern enough in order to be sufficiently integrated into the European Union, which again is many myths that are surrounding this region, which could have been similar to Eastern Europe and Central Europe before the Eastern enlargement. So I guess it took a lot of courage for Western European countries to embrace Eastern Europe at the, before the big enlargement of 2004 and maybe a similar exercise is now up and coming for our minds and our, our, our culture mindsets when it comes to Balkans. So how do you sell them the, the readiness of Balkans to maybe get closer to European Union? Well, I think that uh, it is true, uh, as you said, that there are a few um, uh, issues in terms of perception by uh, in, within EU member states uh, constituency about the Balkans. In, this is inevitable because also the legacy uh, of the war, it's not so uh, far in the past uh, and still the image of, of uh, refugees or the, image, the images of instability, instability coming from the Balkans is, is, um, is something that is very visible um, to the people in Europe and therefore this is what people associated the Balkan to. Um, but there is a lot of energy, there is a lot of willingness to change. Uh, I see this, as I said, particularly in the, uh, amongst young people. And the enlargement process is a very uh, rigorous process that entails uh, grassroots transformation uh, of uh, the countries, uh, uh, strengthening the rule of law, strengthening the economy, strengthening uh, policies for youth, for employment, are all part uh, of our engagement with this country. So uh, through 
years-long processes for each targeted for each of the countries in the in the Ladrian pipeline, uh, we are helping uh, the society societies to to change structure, institutions to evolve, to reach European standards, and uh, obviously slowly to implement all the acquis because this is the the acquis being the European legislation, be, be, me, meaning exactly the whole body of laws that compose that regulate the life of the Union from the treaties to the directives and regulations, etc. So we are doing an enormous uh, job and the countries in the region are doing an enormous job and they will join when they are ready, of course, and, uh, and this is a decision that uh, EU member states will have to take unanimously, so uh, the rules of the game are very clear in terms of decision-making here in Brussels, so this is another aspect to be taken into account. There will not be an enlargement if all countries. So in, it's not that they the will EU. join when they're ready, but it's also yes, when we are when ready. When we're ready, exactly. Yeah, that's both the, sides. And so you most specifically work on the rule of law aspects in Albania. So what can you tell us a bit more concretely? How does your life look? How much do you commute between Brussels and Albania? And what do you do more specifically for them to reform this area of life? Well, these are, as I said, very sensitive uh, uh, areas of work. So it's their priority areas. And therefore, also in terms of our financial assistance, there is a, a lot of uh, investment of uh, EU uh, funding that is being allocated for the past few years to really boost reforms, to really uh, change the dynamics and obviously uh, generate virtuous dynamics in terms of uh, institutional change uh, and also in terms of uh, human resources policies, etc., etc. There is, in average, uh, a mission, uh, as, as you put it, a business trip every month or every two months, depending on, uh, on how we manage to combine our duties. Uh, we have a structured engagement or rule of law, so there is a, every year there is an annual committee, bilateral committee between the, uh, the, the EU managed by the Commission and the country concerned. So we sit and review progress every year in these committees, but also in between there is always a, a need to, to engage with the interlocutors like Ministry of Justice, interlocutors from the Ministry of Interior and so on and so forth. So, as I said, uh, this is very exciting areas because, of course, positive change in the rule of law, in the functioning of the justice system, in the functioning of the, the police uh, are changes that are very visible and affect directly the life of citizens. So citizens, uh, the issue in the rule of law are the issues that the citizens care, care mostly about, along with obviously uh, socio-economic uh, opportunities, etc. So so it is it is an exciting area and it is an area in which the, the, the Commission has put as a top priority for, for all enlargement countries. And, uh, I feel proud to, to contribute to positive change in, this, uh, in these areas. Are you always welcome on the ground? Does it really look like a very friendly relationship where both EU and Albania are working towards the same result of the reforms? I can imagine that maybe there are parts of the society or of the administration that may uh, not be so excited about the reforms that you are pushing them to do. or. Is, are the prospects, as you say, of, of the enlargement really so attractive as the polls would be showing that it is a more simpler journey in terms of the buy-in of the partners that you're working with? 
Well, I think that when you have such a strong popular support for uh, the EU and therefore indirectly for the EU agenda, uh, inevitably, uh, whatever color the government is uh, in the country, it is, it is clear that uh, reform that are necessary to, to move the country ahead in its European path are always on top of the agenda. So uh, uh, with such strong popular support, this is, uh, this is a, an important uh, advantage. Uh, and overall, I think, as I say, in the, case, in the case of Albania, there is, as I said, there is a lot of thirst for Europe in the youth. But I think more generally, this is not something that I can attribute only to the youth. I also noticed that uh, there is a lot of uh, understanding and a lot of uh, uh, willingness to move forward uh, in general across the public administration. Uh, and of course, without entering politics, without entering the government, opposition, parliament dynamics, if I just look at the civil service, I notice that uh, indeed there is a lot of attention, there is a lot of uh, dedication uh, to, to move things forward, to make things right uh, for the destiny of the country and, and the European destiny of the country. So this is something that is, uh, has been uh, very uh, refreshing, reassuring, uh, throughout the past. And recently you told me that you even managed to export your music to Albania and you got to do some concerts over there, so I guess that could be kind of a nice experience for your partners from WAC to see you in action in this other identity that you have. Yes, it was, it's, it's, we actually, with the band we played two times in Albania because, you know, we, are, we, have, we have very busy lives, so sometimes the, the best way to, to organize a concert is actually to make it happen where one of us is, is on business trip. And I managed to organize twice um, um, for the band to join over the weekend, obviously, we were, we were taking weekend break and play in, uh, in Tirana, which is a very vibrant, uh, vibrant city. Uh, with a lot of energy and a very interesting cultural, uh, uh, very interesting cultural dynamics, and I think this is also uh, part of our duties. I mean, not everybody is a musician, obviously, but uh, when doing external relations, uh, I think uh, whatever your portfolio is, I think it's very important to get acquainted with the, the cultural dynamics and the societal dynamics of the countries that are in our portfolio. So uh, regardless of my case, for me being a musician, it comes more natural to discover, exploit and exchange certain cultural channels. It is through culture that the exchange beyond the pure content-related office dynamic with our interlocutors from the country. It is with pure culture that the real exchange uh, takes place. And this is why so far I can say that I've always fell in love with the country I, I dealt with. But you don't only give back to Europe through music and your work, but also through education, uh, because you're also a professor, teacher, researcher in multiple places. How, what is your focus there? Which are the places that you enjoy most? Uh, what is it that you teach? How do you teach? Well, I, I come from academia, so pri prior to joining the commission, I, from my PhD, I, had, I started to teach and that was something that I really enjoyed. Uh, and then I, I managed to realize the, my dream of joining the, the EU, and in particular the Commission as a, as a civil servant, 
uh, and despite that I thought that keeping some limited uh, teaching activities uh, whenever the job in the commission would allow was something for me at a personal level important to do but also important for the commission to to do constant outreach because not only it's important to do outreach when people travel to Brussels or when we travel to a country and there are meetings related to our work but I think the best outreach can be done when people don't expect that someone is actually doing outreach uh, you know and I think uh, my students in, in I, I teach in London and Rome mainly and students sign up to my course uh, which uh, at the beginning was not uh, uh, was linked to European integration and enlargement etc but slowly I've moved uh, although keeping the same case studies uh, I moved also more vocational training so in, in a sense there is also an interest in preparing uh, future interns and future maybe colleagues etc through vocational training and uh, I, I have to say it's it's a hidden outreach because people sign up to the course because they like the idea and they like the content and then they get before their eyes someone who actually works in the commission believe in what he's doing and in what the commission is doing and what the EU means for its citizens and therefore I think they is most effective outreach because you know they don't come up to Brussels for outreach. They're there, they're doing their university life, and then ta-da, surprise effect. <laughs> Julia so, shows up. Julia shows up talking. But what well I about find is really exciting, and I think that is the education 5.0 because the universities who only teach theories and concepts are becoming outdated and irrelevant given the uncertainty that's out there on the job markets and also given the vast volume of information that is out there online. So it is an interesting question to be asking ourselves what is really the 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 most um, valuable style of teaching at the universities and I think it's really interesting if you manage to bring together the concepts, the theories of European integration with the insider knowledge of the operations and as a third pillar with a bit more insight into who do you need to become if you would want to become a creator or co-creator of the European policies and, and maybe um, enter the, the European civil service one day. What is it that's most surprising for the students when you tell them about our job? What is it that sounds cool to them that they wouldn't have expected about um, our job and lifestyle that you think we could be communicating much more broadly in order to, again, bust those myths about the European officials being grey and boring people? I'll answer your question by telling the, actually the opposite story. Because one time it happened to me, and then I'll get to your point. One time it did happen to me that a student, uh, after the first seminar, after the first two hours, comes to me and says, you know, I thought you were a diplomat and uh, you were doing foreign relations for the EU, etc. And now you're explaining, you came here to talk about um, policy writing techniques. Uh, because this is what I, I found more interesting moving from academia from PhD to the Commission is how you uh, change you have to change your narrative and your, your your writing style and techniques in order to have accessibility in your in your documents in your output. What was your PhD in by the way? Uh, I wrote a PhD uh, on uh, uh, sovereignty 
related issues. Uh, and my case study was Bosnia-Herzegovina, the state building of Bosnia-Herzegovina after the war. So uh, I found very interesting this uh, dichotomy between academic writing and policy writing. And, and then I made this uh, course um, where I, I guide, I include students in differences, but also similarities. And I try to show how, how, how easy it is sometimes to just keep some good habits that you have in academia when you join an office, it doesn't matter whether you're working for a commission or an NGO. And this student comes and says, I thought you were a diplomat. And now I understand you write a lot in your work. And I don't know if I want to become a diplomat anymore because I told him, you know, when you are a junior diplomat and you join foreign service in your country, that's the first thing they make you write is, is briefings. I mean, it's our life in the foreign ministry. Like if you go, even if you go to an embassy, you would probably write a speech for your ambassador. You would be writing all the time. And then it's funny because at the end of the course, by really trying to making this ex exciting for them and and i was trying to explain you know when you write a briefing you're a very privileged person it's like you are steven spielberg of policy making because you are you have your 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 actor who's going to deliver but it's you at your desk with your various layers of management of course but it's you the initiator so it's cool to be the initiator and then at the end of the course the student came and say i changed my mind again i, I like this Steven Spielberg of policy concept. I, I think I want to, because he was a student who wanted to, to become a diplomat in his country. He was not a EU citizen in this case, I think, to remember. He was an Indian student in London and he wanted to go back to India and become, become a diplomat. And I said, well, I'm happy you changed your mind twice. So now you want to do foreign relations. I think it's a very exciting area. Do you have any experience or relationship with Slovakia through your students or arts that you're doing or work? I had the privilege of having a few Slovak students, Slovak students in the in classes, uh, particularly in London. Uh, I think uh, maybe one time in Rome too. But but my classes in London are very uh, diverse and international. I, and this is what is beautiful for me as a commission official when I can explain the achievements of the union, not only to EU member state citizens, but to students, but also a lot of students from Latin America I've had in my career. And it's, it's interesting to see how sometimes in classes they are more thrilled by our achievement, you know, by Schengen, by the, all the freedoms that, that they, they, became, uh, they become acquainted with. And Slovakia, I was. And Slovakia. Slovakia is a fantastic country. I had the privilege of of uh, going for an outreach uh, in in Bratislava in one university a few years ago for the commission, and I had a class of I think it was they merged few classes, so I had a, a huge room packed of students. It was a very dynamic interaction, and there were many students also from neighboring countries. Uh, from Ukraine, for instance, I remember there were quite a few students studying in Bratislava, uh, from Russia too. Uh, it was a very interesting class. And uh, um, I, I have a special relation with Slovakia because, uh, as you probably know, the artist that designed the, the logo of our band, Drone72, is a Slovak artist. Uh, it, happen, it happens to be a Slovak artist, so I'm, uh, I'm always... Uh, many of our gig flyers and posters uh, have been handmade 
with Chinese ink by this amazing uh, uh, guy uh, that is in Bratislava. So I have a very special friend in Bratislava who is a, who is an artist. What I wanted to say is that I find it really rewarding if you get to speak to people from third countries, from like really internationally and globally, because you manage to see this seed of inspiration and maybe one day, because these people are studying policy making and politics, maybe one day they will turn into change makers in their regions, inspired by what you're teaching them. And so it makes me think, what is your dream in terms of your career and further development? Because so far we've covered these three streams, you as a policymaker, as an artist as, and as a teacher. Do you see these three streams converging or one of them taking a priority at some stage of your life? What are your bigger vision and dreams where you see yourself being most fully expressed and your talent being mostly used? Well, I think I have to say uh, working in the, in the EU has given me really a lot. Uh, and even my dedication to the job has kind of grown consistently since I joined the commission uh, almost 10 years ago, as I said. So I see that this trajectory is going up and I think that, and I hope that my contribution to your integration through uh, exciting, but also sometimes can be less exciting tasks. Huh? I mean, this is life life of a civil servant you never know what's coming it's not always uh, everything super exciting but there are things that have to be have to be done uh, but i think the beauty of of our job is that uh, we are contributing to i think one of the biggest dreams that was ever uh, conceived and and uh, i i like there is a definition i mean our motto i think is still united in diversity but there is a definition uh, of this, which was coming from the Italian founding father of Europe, Alcide de Gasperi, uh, which I found in a very fascinating speech uh, in the, I think it was the late 40s, early 50s, when all the ferment uh, for the initial uh, creation of uh, something uh, at the European level was, uh, was coming about. And he said in a speech that Europe shall be built united in variety and I really love this label because I love our label too united in diversity don't get me wrong but I really love this label uh, because I think that it has less polarizing meaning variety is it gives more the sense of opportunities and I really think in going from the macro to the micro of the job I really think that working the, in the Commission in the EU gives, there is, gives a variety of opportunities. There are so many uh, uh, tasks, there is so many uh, opportunities for talent to, to grow and there is also uh, mobility is an important aspect uh, of, of our job. When I, I talk to colleagues who are in the National Civil Ser Service, sometimes I, I know people who have been on the same job for 15, 20 years, which is something that sometimes on very technical dossier also happens here in Brussels, don't get me wrong, but there is very limited mobility sometimes. So I think that this concept of variety uh, still makes me think that my uh, uh, human and professional realization here in Brussels can continue uh, very well uh, in the Commission and I hope to be uh, a good servant to the cause while at the same time, of course, at, uh, over the weekend, playing rock 
uh, it's not a bad thing to do, I would say. And in the after-work hours also for your colleagues, <laughs> you yes. know, the bars of Brussels. One last thing that it makes me think of, adding to the variety, the concept of creativity. Uh, we've discussed last time when we met uh, that both of us had a very creative period now. Also combining this with what you shared about good policy writing and writing in general. How do you work your creativity? What are the circumstances and periods that you manage to be mostly creative? For those people wondering out there, uh, next time they want to write something or compose something or write a book and they don't really know how to get their thoughts really organized or how to really unleash this beauty that they're carrying around, what is your trick of making this happen and creating new beautiful things? So, so you're not talking about creating new briefings in this no. moment? No. No, okay, so it's really pure non-work related question. The, the Gasper kind of speech and okay. the Julia Venneri kind of song. I wrote a song yesterday, actually. Uh, I wrote a new song and I sent it to the, the all the friends in the band on WhatsApp and there was unanimous approval and everybody said, we look forward to playing this together. So. Uh, how did I do that? Well, I think the only way, first of all, one doesn't have to be shy with himself or herself. Uh, it's important to let emotion uh, flow, to let emotion uh, hit us, because sometimes emotions are a big hit, uh, positive, negative, painful, joyful. So uh, I think to be creative, in order to be creative, it's important to have the readiness, the maturity and the sensitivity to let emotion do their, have their impact on our mind and on our heart. And it's important to be able to listen. This is something, to the listen to the emotions. And if, if, if you're a good listener in general, if you like to exchange and, and listen to, uh, to, to your friends, etc., uh, you also become very good listeners of yourself and then it's just about sitting down and writing and I, I write most of the song most of the songs on my mobile phone because you know uh, inspiration we have comes. them glued to our hands and so yes, whenever are, the inspiration we, kicks in, the, in you can exactly. record it it's always in the pocket so um, sometimes I I remember I wrote sometime, one time I wrote a song during a, um, I was on, on a business trip and I was flying back to Brussels and it was my last official mission for that five-year term dealing with Bosnia and Herzegovina and when the plane took off I just saw five years of my life and many many things and I wrote a song which is still unreleased uh, but uh, you know and it just did it on the mobile on the plane so you just I think educate your here to listen and, and to listen to your heart and uh, and it's a sensitivity and then it's just about writing and if you are skilled with melody which is the most difficult thing in a song then you have a song so it's a, it's a, it's a very simple process thank you very much and we are looking to listening a lot more from drone 72 oh thank you so much you're very kind Lucia. <laughs> thank you for this exchange i i loved it and I'm, i wish you all the best thank you see you bye
Thank you for listening. For follow-up, you can find us on all major podcast platforms and all social media platforms, including our Instagram, Lights on Europe. So feel free to go there now and leave us your review, likes, feedback, as well as tips on who would you like to hear interviewed next time. Bye!